Thank you, Bill. Well, as we come to the conclusion today of a series that we've entitled Forward in the book of Exodus, we're in chapter 40, so I want to invite you to turn there with me, Exodus 40. I'd like to read a fairly large section here, verses uh, 16 through 33, and invite you to follow along with me. It, uh, it so complements, I think, the theme that we've seen uh, in our music worship today about how great and how awesome our God is. And I'd like to read again verses 16 through 33, Exodus 40. <clears throat> Verse 16, then Moses did according to all that the Lord commanded him, so he did. In the first month, in the second year, on the first day of the month, the tabernacle was erected. Moses erected the tabernacle. He laid its basis and set it up in its frames and put in its poles and raised up the pillars. Verse 19, and he spread the tent over the tabernacle and put the covering of the tent over it as the Lord had commanded Moses. He took the testimony, which we understand to be the Ten Commandments, the tablets, put them in the ark and put the poles on the ark and set the mercy seat upon the ark. And he brought the ark into the tabernacle and set up the veil of the screen and screened the, the ark of the testimony as the Lord commanded Moses. Verse 22, he put the table in the tent of the meeting on the north side of the tabernacle outside the veil and arranged the bread on it before the Lord as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the lampstand in the tent of the meeting opposite the table on the south side of the tabernacle and set up the lamps before the Lord as the Lord had commanded Moses. Verse 26, he put the golden lampstand or altar in, in, in the tent of the meeting before the veil and burned fragrant incense on it <clears throat> as the Lord had commanded Moses. And he put in place a screen for the door of the tabernacle, and he set the altar of the burnt offering at the entrance of the tabernacle, the tent of the meeting, and offered on it the burnt offering and the grain offering as the Lord had commanded Moses. Verse 30, and he set the basin between the tent of the meeting and the altar and put the water in it for washing, with which Moses and Aaron and his sons washed their hands and their feet. When they went into the tent of meeting and when they approached the altar, they washed as the Lord commanded Moses. And he erected the court around the tabernacle and the altar and set up the screen of the gate of the court. So, I love these words, so Moses finished the work. Let me add my warm welcome to all of you here this morning, whether you're here in person or you're watching at, uh, at home and worshiping with us there. It is such a blessing to be here and open up God's word on this, the day of endings. And uh, these verses, as you just heard, and we are studying this morning, are indeed the conclusion. They're the climax. They're the high watermark of the book of Exodus that we have been working our way through the book to come to. And here's the thing. Uh, I believe the ending of the book of Exodus is not just a good ending, but it is the very best of endings ever. In fact, I would submit to you today that this ending in the book of Exodus is a perfect ending because it accomplishes three things that I believe the book was setting out to teach us. First, this ending demonstrates, if you're taking notes, the priority of exacting obedience, of exacting obedience. 
And in the end, as we see the spirit of the Lord, the glory of the Lord filling his glorious presence in the tabernacle, I believe it demonstrates God's approval. Second, I think this ending answers a big and repeated question. Think about it. Though the Israelites were in the middle of a desolate desert, they had fierce enemies surrounding them. They were weak and liable to sin and rebellion, just like all of us. And yet they had the question, would God ultimately dwell among them as he promised? Would he dwell among them as he had promised? And then third, this ending leaves us, I think, you're going to see with a need for more information. It's kind of a big cliffhanger if you're taking notes. On the one hand, uh, the book is brought to a high point and a climax in the book with the filling of the, of the glory of God and the, the completion of the, the tabernacle. But on the other hand, I hope to show you that uh, it's obvious that God was preparing his people and every one of us as we read it today for further instructions. But as I often say, when I get to this point, I'm getting ahead of myself. <laughs> so let's, uh, let's start by looking at here, talk about the big question that is answered. And that requires a little bit of review. I want to go back and look at some things here. Uh, some of you will recall how the book of Exodus, the narrative, all got started, right? Exodus 1 picks up very deliberately from the end of Genesis 50, saying there arose a new king, there arose a new pharaoh who did not know Joseph. And uh, some of you will recall that, uh, that uh, Joseph had, by God's grace and mercy, been risen to the second in command of all of Egypt. And because of that, the Pharaoh did all kinds of favors for his people. But then comes this Pharaoh who, it says, did not know Joseph. And as a result, when he looked out and when he saw how God was blessing the people of Israel, especially in their numbers, he became frightened and he began to persecute them, and we know that they put him in bondage. And so at the end of Exodus chapter 2, we find the people of God crying out to, to, to God after 400 years. I can't even imagine it, 400 years of sleep. And at this stage of the book, it seems so barren, it seems so blank, it seems so dark. Is God really listening? Does God care? Does he know about us? Will he really be there for us? And God's response is amazing. It's one of my favorite passages in the book of Exodus, chapter 2, verse 24. And God heard, hear that? God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and with Jacob. And God saw the people of Israel, and God knew them. And it is simply, God says, hey, let me put your mind to rest, your heart to rest. I haven't abandoned you. I haven't forgotten you. I am here with you, and I am here for you. And folks, I believe at this moment in the narrative, we find God's glory stepping in. God's glory steps in. And in so doing, God begins to answer what I believe to be the big and the repeated question that dogs the people of uh, Israel throughout their book. Will God really be with us? Will he really keep his promises? Now, looking back at Exodus 2.24, specifically, God says, I, I've remembered the covenant that I made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, what is that covenant? If I had time, I would take you back to Genesis 17, and I would point out how when God set apart Abraham and his descendants, he made three big promises to them. First, even before he had a child, he said, you're going to have a son, Abram, and, that's, and you're going to have descendants faster than I can even imagine. You can even imagine. So he says, you're going to have many descendants. Second, I'm going to give you a land. And third, and most meaningful, I think, he says, 
You're going to be my people, and I am going to be your God. Notice, please, how at the heart of all these covenant promises is God's assurance, I will be with you. I will be your God. And thus, when the people were wondering, hey, what's going on here? After centuries of slavery, at that moment, it, it didn't seem like God was speaking, but yet in the scriptures, God makes it clear through the narrative here of the Holy Spirit that God saw, God heard, God remembered, and God knew them. Later, when God raised up Moses to deliver them, from Egypt, and he met them in the burning. He met them in the burning bush there, not far from Mount Sinai. There, according to Exodus three, God told him, Moses, you got to remember two things. You need to remember these two things. You need to present these two things to the people. First, he said, in verse twelve, I'm going to be with you. You notice the repeated theme. I will be there with you. And then, second, in verse fourteen, he says, I am who I am. I am totally sufficient. And then, having commissioned Moses for this deliverance of his people, God sent him to Pharaoh with this unshakable, unalterable message. What does he say? Let my people go. But does he stop there? No. He goes on to say, let my people go, that they may go out into the wilderness. Why? So that they might worship and they might serve me. It was never simply about delivering his people from slavery. The Lord's endgame, right from the beginning, has always been to bring his people to himself. Yes, he had compassion on them. And yes, he acted in the face of injustice. But it was so much more than just righting a wrong. It was freeing them from the bondage of sin and slavery and bringing them to himself so that he might fulfill the covenant promises that he made to them. That's why when you read through this book, it's amazing. You see the presence of God symbolized in this cloud of glory. Remember in Exodus 13, for example, we're told this pillar of cloud would lead them along in the day and then in the night by a pillar of fire. And that's why, friends, and that's when, friends, I believe, not only did they see God's glory revealed, but it leads them. It's personal. It's real for them. In addition to leading the people by day and by night, this cloud was an amazing testimony to the, not only themselves, but to the other nations of God's involvement, his personal care, his protection, and his provision for his people. Remember in Exodus 14? People of Israel are literally between a rock and a hard place. Pharaoh and the Egyptian army charging up behind them and in front of them the vast Red Sea. But that cloud, we're told in verse 19, move from the front of the Israel's uh, lights to the rear to protect them and hold off the charging Egyptian army. Later, in Exodus 16, that cloud appears to them. When the people of Israel and the women, they're crying, I don't have enough food, I don't have enough water. They're murmuring and they're complaining. And God, in spite of that, in their grace, in his grace and mercy, meets their needs. And then starting in Exodus 19, we find that cloud that guided and instructed them and protected them in the wilderness settles down on Mount Sinai where Moses was meeting with God. This is a cloud of glory, scripture says. The word glory means kabod and, and it means weightiness or heaviness. And if people ask me, well, what is the glory of God? How do you define it? Here's what I would say. It is fundamentally a grasp of the weightiness of God. It's not oppressive, crushing weight but as a majestic, transcendent, all-consuming beauty that emanates from all that he is. We just sang about it, didn't we? That being noted, 
as I got to this point in my study, it occurred to me that in our world, and even in many Christian lives and churches today, we're suffering from an immeasurable lightness in our perspective of God. Let me remind you here that when that cloud of glory representing God's almighty presence in his magnificence was mysteriously and fearfully resting upon Mount Sinai, only Moses could approach. And let me remind you where the people of Israel were. They were down at the base cowering and shaking, weren't they? When I was doing men's groups regularly, I read a book by Patrick Morley, and in it was a quote along these lines and by way of application that really changed my life. Here's what he wrote, and you think with me about how it applies. There is a God we want, and there is a God who is, and the turning point of our lives is when we stop seeking the God we want and start seeking the God who is. What a difference that can make. I wonder, dear brothers and sisters in Christ today, is your perspective of God accurate? Do you, do I, suffer from an immeasurable lightness in our perspective of God? I'm telling you, when you start seeking the God who is, it changes your life. The next section of the book of Exodus, chapters 25 through 31, we read all about how the, the construction of the tabernacle. And I have to admit, when I got down into that section, at first glance, all the instructions, all the laws, all the ceremony, and then repeating it almost verbatim when we got to chapters 35, I have to admit it could seem a little boring, it could be a little tedious and un unimportant to our contemporary minds. However, I would submit to you today, especially in view of the theme that I'm hoping you're seeing here, that it's at the very heart of the storyline of this book, God wanting to be with his people. This is where God would dwell with his people. And it's important. Exodus 29, 45 and 46. This is what God says to the people of Israel. I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt. That I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. Of course, we all know what happens, right? While Moses is up receiving the instructions and the law, the people down below at the base are growing anxious. And in their anxiousness, Israel foolishly breaks her covenant with God and worships a golden calf. And the entire building project is put on hold until Exodus 35. And I thought, how ironic. How ironic is it that God's desire was to have a tabernacle, a tabernacle where he could be among their presence. And what is the sin of the golden calf all about? Wasn't it a failure to recognize God's presence already among them? Paraphrasing chapter 32, verses 2 through 4, when the people come to Aaron and they're impatient. I can almost hear him. Hey, I ain't going to wait anymore. You know, we need to make something we can see, a God that we can touch, a presence that's right here in our midst. I want a God like that. I want to worship a God like that. And amazingly, the very thing that they wanted and were calling for, they were in danger of losing, the really having God's presence with them. Folks, this, this could have been it. God could have said, party's over. 
But God being holy and, 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 and loving, and, and along with uh, the noble intercession of Moses, God, or God welcomes him back. And afterwards, in chapters 35 through 40, we see this incredible transformation, as Pastor Mike pointed out last week. We see real evidence of a people whose heart has been, not just here, you know, regret, but concrete expressions of obedience. In verse 33, verse 6, chapter 33, verse 6, we see that first they stripped themselves of all their ornaments of, of pagan idolatry. Chapters 35 and 36, we see they had one of the most amazing free will offerings ever, providing all the materials, all the skill that needed to construct the tabernacle and its furnishings. And here's one that we didn't really highlight, I thought, over the last couple of weeks. A third, I think, evidence of this repentance. We're told here, the people of Israel meticulously obeyed the commandments of God. Amazingly, in Exodus 39, just as the Lord has commanded Moses, is repeated in verse 1, verse 5, verse 7, verse 21, verse 26, verse 29, verse 31. And then when you get to 32, it gives this summary. And the sons of Israel did according to all that the Lord had commanded Moses, so they did. Later in chapter, uh, the same chapter, verses 42 and 43, we find a second summary. According to all that the Lord had commanded Moses, so the people of Israel had done all the work. And Moses saw all the work, and behold, they had done it as the Lord had commanded. So they had done it. And then Moses blessed them. And if you weren't paying attention, I tried my best to highlight it when I was reading through chapter 40. You heard that constant refrain, didn't you? According to the Lord's command seven more times. You know, it might be short-sighted, but at least for the time being, this was a newly chastened, repentant, and obedient people. And then we come to the end of Exodus 40. The completion of the tabernacle, it's erected. The climax of the entire book. And, and, and I'm sure like you, you might be thinking, Yay, we're finally finished talking about curtains and tents and utensils and walls and ceremonies, right? If, however, we can look at this, and we were reminded of this last night from a theological narrative perspective, it's far from being a mundane afterthought. This moment, after all, is what the whole book has been building us for. How do we know that the Lord really was with them as he promised? How do we know that the covenant promises have not been annulled? How do we know that God wanted to still lead them and to love them? I'll tell you how, verse 34. Then the cloud covered the tent of the meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And that, my friends, is when, in the narrative, God's glory resides. These words gave the Israelites the assurance that the God of glory would, would be present to grant them all of the blessings of his saving grace, just as he promised. And, and not just any God. We've just sung about it, and I wonder sometimes if we really understand what we're singing. Not just any God. We're talking, folks, here about the I am who I am God. 
We are talking here about I will be, I will be whom I will be, God. We're talking here about the God who promises I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And as Mike reminded us last week, we are talking about the God who is not just bigger than we think, but the God who is bigger than we can think. Consider this for a moment. It really isn't any great deal to have the closest of a God who's kind of chummy, right? A big mess, just like all of us. He feels bad all the time, loves us and our shucks. You know, he's trying to do his best for us. It's really no great deal to have a God who is so massive and so distant, so far away and unapproachable that we can't even begin to imagine him. But what we have here in Exodus 40 is amazing. In fact, it just might be one of the best set of news in all the Bible. It's the fact that this transcendent God of all awe and weightiness and glory has moved into the neighborhood and made his home in our midst. And thus Exodus 40 answers the one big question that I believe has dogged the people of Israel throughout the book in a resounding clear answer. Yes, God will definitely keep his promises. And yes, God will most certainly dwell in his tabernacle among his people. And it was indeed a glorious and transforming moment in history. For them and for us, I hope to show you now. You know, folks, we heard it in the prayer today, although the challenges and concerns, the losses that we have experienced maybe a little less severe than the challenges and the concerns of these oppressed Hebrews. I think to some extent we can all certainly have some understanding of what they may be feeling. During hard times, we have a propensity to be tempted to feel like God's forgotten us. Our worst, to feel like he's just standing by and letting us just work out things for ourselves. But if there's one application that came to my heart through this study of Exodus, and from the presence of God, fulfilling his promise, fulfilling the tabernacle here in Exodus 40, it's this. We sang about it. We just sang about it. Although we may not always feel it, although we may not always see it, folks, we serve a God who hears, who sees, and who knows us. A God who keeps his promises and a God who wants to be with us. And as Pastor Mike rightly pointed out last weekend, this is the amazing thing. He wants to be with us even when we, but especially when we don't deserve to be with him. And whatever you've done, whatever I've done, whatever horrible, selfish, hurtful, hateful thing we've done, none of that is stronger than our God's desire to be with us in the tabernacle and it's a screaming demonstration that he will literally move heaven and earth to make that happen do you know this God I mean personally know him and if you do are you aware of his presence and his care in your daily life looking back now verse 35 
as I noted in my introductory comments. In addition to answering this big question, I find the conclusion of Exodus 40 secondly leaves kind of a big cliffhanger. Look at verse 35. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of the meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. <laughs> How do we make sense of that? Why now, when the Israelites have built the tabernacle, it's all built, and God's glory has come in to live into the neighborhood, is Moses deliberately left outside looking in? You know, I noted earlier, and I want to reiterate it here, our world, and even many Christians and churches today, I believe, suffer from an immeasurable lightness in our perspective of God. And God may be near, but he's not cozy, right? And here's the thing. Repeatedly in Scripture, and I think we just sang, I don't know how you guys chose all the songs today, but we just sang about this too. We're warned uh, in, in God's word about God's presence is more than can be borne by even the holiest of men. And thus, we need to understand that those early occasions when God summoned Moses up to meet him on Mount Sinai, it was a very well-guarded, very gracious moment. But now we see the fullness of the cloud inhabiting the tabernacle, just as was planned all the way from the beginning, and God says, hey, don't come in. As special as the relationship was with Moses and God, he was still sinful and needed a savior, right? Let me remind you, too, is one of the things I remember as we were going through the study of the tabernacle. And only once a year, once a year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest alone could go into the tabernacle and later the or temple where the mercy seat and the Ark of the Covenant and the glory of the Lord resided. That's why I believe here in Exodus 40, God is setting a, sec a sequel setting a sequel, and I believe that sequel is actually the book of Leviticus that comes right on the heels of Exodus, because in a nutshell, Leviticus 1, chapter 1, says this, you know, if this is going to work, and God's going to dwell in your midst, you're going to need atonement. You're going to need a sacrifice. Of course, if you know your Bibles, you know that the books of Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy don't tie up all the loose ends. Because Exodus is making way for something far more than the rest of the Pentateuch, isn't it? It's preparing the way, helping us understand the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so later we'll learn in the New Testament, the Lord Jesus is our Passover lamb. We'll learn that he is our divine lawgiver. We'll learn that he is our manna in the wilderness. We'll learn that he is water in the desert and life-giving rock, a, a high priest, a mediator, our intercessor, our mercy seat, our substitute, sacrifice, and our holy tabernacle. Speaking of Jesus, in John 1, verse 14, we're told, And the word became flesh and dwelt, literally tabernacled among us, and we seen the glory, the glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and of truth. In other words, the tabernacle in our midst, where God dwelled among his people, was just a shadow of a greater dwelling that God would give his people later. Amazingly, the glory of God that filled the tabernacle took on flesh and bones in his incarnate son, Jesus. And he lived 
and he taught, and he died on the cross and rose again permanently, removing the barrier of our sin that keeps us from dwelling with God. As Bill prayed earlier, again, I can't believe all the pieces that came together here today. And when that curtain was torn at the crucifixion, it symbolized it's finished. His work is done. It is enough. And thus the big cliffhanger in Exodus has been finally fully answered. The God who dwells in our midst, the God who dwells in our midst is now the God of open access. Not once a year by the high priest, but every moment of every day for the rest of our lives. Listen, for everyone who by faith puts their trust in Jesus Christ. And so it is amazing. It's great for me to be able to stand up here and acknowledge today that we are celebrating the fact that 2,000 years ago, Christ moved into the neighborhood. That's awesome. But the question I feel compelled to ask today is, has Christ moved into your heart? Do you know him as your Savior? If you invited Christ to move into your heart, the news gets even better. Amazing to me. Look at what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 16. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If you are in Christ, declares Paul, you now have not only access to an atonement with God, you have the very presence of God's Holy Spirit living in you. Isn't that amazing? You, my friends, if you have trusted in Christ, are now the temple of the living God. His presence, says Scripture, not only empowers us to live a life of victory over sin and temptation, but enables us to effectively share and live out the gospel. And he loves to engage with us, you and me, and be that still small voice of God's comfort when we need it the most. So remember that the next time you're lying in a hospital bed. Remember that when you're standing in a funeral home or when you hear words you never thought you'd hear. You are not alone. God will always be with you. He cares for you, and he promises to be with you forever if you've trusted in Jesus. And because that's true, God calls us, each one of us individually, to embrace his plan and move forward, trusting him each step of the way. That's what we've been talking about, saved from too, haven't we? Because just like these Israelites, the Lord's endgame was was not just to save us, but to bring, him, to bring us to himself. As Izzy reminded us last night, our hope is in something far better to come. Where are we investing? Where are we investing? Likewise, as a church, we must keep moving forward. We can't stay where we are, nor can we go backwards. The only direction, trusting God, is going forward. Is that going to be easy? No. <laughs> it can be hard. But it is the only way if we want to move on in God and grow and accomplish the purposes he has for us. 
not just individually, but corporately as a church body. I'm so excited, as Mike mentioned, some of the announcements today of the way God is moving in us and through us as we seek to be that, fulfill that mission of making fully devoted followers of God who love, who love God and love each other, you know, love others. Wait, I'm supposed to be able to be the patron, you know, never mind. I should have said that a lot better. I'm going to say it again. To fulfill our mission of making fully devoted followers of Christ who love God and love others. Think for a moment even of the ways we've seen God work, even in the most recent months. The guidance, the protection, the provisions during the pandemic. You know, we never closed our doors. Never. All the new members that have joined us during that time, and many of them putting their trust in Jesus for the very first time. The hirings we're seeing, the new worship leader and communications director, the renovations happening all the outreach and missions initiatives that we've seen. BBS and EBC are starting up the baby bottle fundraiser, the biggest ever. The youth heading off to our missions trip, having the opportunity to serve people like Brad and Elizabeth and Anna Bowers, who's heading out in just a few weeks to go and serve the Afghan refugees. God has been so good, hasn't he? He's been so good. And one of the biggest celebrations for me was watching the baptisms this morning and seeing all the people whose lives have been transformed. And I pray as one of the pastors here that we as a body will continue with all our heart to seek to glorify Christ more and more as we move forward together, trusting in his goodness and his grace and his provisions, not in our strength and our wisdom, especially over the next several months as we see a lot of transitioning happening. May God guide us, may God direct us, and may God bless us as we serve and trust Him together. Amen? Amen? Father, we thank you so much for this powerful reminder of who you are. I'm reminded, Lord, that though life is sometimes hard, you are indeed always good. And Father, we thank you for the promise that you keep us in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed upon you. And I pray that you would help us individually and corporately learn to trust in you with all our heart. And Lord, we would not lean on our own understanding, but acknowledge you every step of the way, Lord, so that we can move forward in confidence that you are the one who directs our steps. Thank you, Father, for your grace and your mercy. I pray all these things now in Jesus' name. Amen.